do well, find- yeah, because like, how else was I going to sample a group of non-binary people? Like, there's nowhere you can go and just observe non-binary people. They don't no. like all hang out together. Yeah, it's and was not that even like biggest- you can walk into an LGBTQ bar and assume that you're observing someone who's non-binary. Like you cannot assume. Yeah, so-, so the only place that they actually, I knew were gathering together was in online spaces. Hi, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. So I am so excited to officially release our Friday Book Corner special, which Dr. Halana Darwin gets to be our first participant. So hi, Dr. Darwin. Hi, Halana. We're going to talk about this. Yes. So we're going to talk about her new release, Redoing Gender, How Non-Binary Gender Contributes Towards Social Change. Um, So... Halana has been here in the ivory tower boiler room. Um, if you don't know, please go back into our episodes when Halana talked about her hashtag me Too PhD experience, which we'll get to because she's right working on that in book form. So I want to end with that, but Halana, congratulations. I want to give you a cheers. I'm oh. holding up my ivory tower boiler room mug for all of those watching the video. I'm going to take a little sip from my straw because this is green juice. (laughs) I am drinking cold brew over ice out of my witch's brew cauldron mug. I love your witch's brew mug. I love it so much. It's my favorite mug right now. Okay. You need to message me later how I can get my hands on that. But um, so congratulations. I am so, so, so proud, excited so happy your redoing gender work is now out in the universe. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I I only graduated from my PhD program in August 2020. So I feel like this is pretty record time for revising a dissertation into a book and getting it published. Yes. It could have come out 2021, but it got pushed to a point where it was set to come out in December and I was advised to have it be January instead. So it would have a full 12 months of being brand new on the market instead of seeming older than it actually was within a month. I see. So they wanted you to have the whole 2022. They didn't. I've had to do a lot of self-advocacy. I wanted it to be like that because of advice that I heard from other published authors. Yeah, well, I think it's really wise. And also I've seen all the different, you know, I'm not the only, you know, publicity interview you've had. I've seen, I think you've had some written interviews or, you know, how has the- I feel like there hasn't been much press around my book yet. Uh, (laughs) Oh, there will be. There will be. You have all of 2022. I keep on emailing Palgrave about that being like, I'm sorry, are you going to do anything to push my book? Or am I like literally doing this all on my own? What's happening here? Because you're making most of the money off this. So I'd like to see you do something to sell it. Yeah, well, Uh, I will tweet out Palgrave and... Get them in the loop with this. Like, yo, Palgrave, dropping the ball. Do you like money or not? Hopefully this gets the bowling ball down the alley. (laughs) Um, So 
how long were you working on redoing gender? Seven years. Okay. Um, so it all kind of started with a virtual ethnography that I did as a classroom assignment. And that was published in 2017, but I collected the data 2014, I want to say. Okay. Um, so yeah, it started as just a case study of gender policing that I was going to have in a dissertation that had like different case studies of gender policing in different forms, uh, which is basically the rest of my corpus of work. So I was going to have uh, body positivity and femininity and like, why is body hair so unacceptable in body positive campaigns when everything else is being embraced? Like, what's that about? And it's because it's super threatening to the binary gender order in a way that other things aren't. Um, spoiler alert. And then for masculinity, I was gonna have my research about craft beer and about men drinking fruity beer and all of the anxiety around that. And then I wanted to have a non-binary case study. So that was gonna be my virtual ethnography. Mm -hmm. But while doing the virtual ethnography, it came super clear that there was just way more to explore than I could possibly fit in the scope of that article. And I was getting a lot of feedback from people when I told them about my dissertation that like there wasn't enough of a hook there for it to stand out when I applied for professorships. But they'd be like, okay, but like, what's your actual focus? Like, what's your specialty? What new thing are you bringing to the table? So I decided to scrap the gender policing uh, case study dissertation and just focus entirely on non-binary gender and base interviews off of the findings of my virtual ethnography and do it that way instead. But I'm glad I did because I got a book out of it. Yeah, well, and hopefully the book helps people. Yeah, and so just for all of our listeners, viewers, um, what is an ethnography? Just for those who aren't in the social ethnography is the study of um, community, like how people build community with each other. So uh, traditionally, ethnography is done offline. So in things like going to AA meetings and observing all the different interactive and structural ways that people are building community there, the function of that community in people's lives outside of the meetings, um, et cetera. And then also interviewing people from that community to supplement your observations with their own words and uh, looking at sort of like group dynamics and power differentials and any arguments and tensions that come up and what that means. So that's traditional ethnography. And then as social media really started to pick up, a few people started publishing on the possibility of conducting virtual or cyber ethnography, where you're looking at communities in online spaces and like what's up with those. And there was a lot of controversy around this when the method first came up because of the gatekeepers of the method insisting that what happened online didn't matter, wasn't real, didn't really affect people's lives in a substantial way. And then I feel like the Black Lives Matter movement 
really sort of like put the nail in the coffin of that argument because it became really clear that community that mobilizes online can in fact have a huge impact offline and online. And that like, you can't just dismiss the fact that with the invention of smartphones, we aren't just on the internet for maybe an hour of our day when we get home from our real life, quote unquote, like it's interspersed throughout our entire day. What we do online affects what we do offline mm-hmm. all day. Mm-hmm. And the relationships we form online affect the relationships we form offline and the communities we're a part of. So um, I feel like my article was sort of part of this initial push to get virtual ethnography taken more seriously as a method. And I hear that, in fact, it's assigned most often in methodology courses, because in the method section, I really had to defend why I was doing it that way. It was for an ethnography course. Mm -hmm. It was an assignment to do an ethnography, but because we couldn't have the time to go through IRB, we were warned we wouldn't actually be able to publish what we produced for the course assignment. And so I figured out that by gathering data in a public group online, I didn't have to go through IRB. It's considered the virtual alternative to going to like a fountain in a times in a town square and observing the people around you. Anyone can walk in. So the same privacy caveats aren't there. Uh, So I did that and it was awesome. And it's still my most cited piece of work to date. No, that is so exciting. And I think that it's wonderful that this virtual ethnography that you've really helped usher in is really tantamount to the redoing gender interview process, right? So let's go there. Where did you find- Well, yeah, because like, how else was I going to sample a group of non-binary people? Like there's nowhere you can go and just observe non-binary people. They don't no. like all hang out together. Yeah, it's and was not that even your like biggest... you can walk into an LGBTQ bar and assume that you're observing someone who's non-binary. Like you cannot assume. Yeah. So, so the only place that they actually I knew were gathering together was in online spaces. Uh, okay. Okay. So was that your biggest challenge? Would you say, Helena? Was sampling? Really... Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I had this realization that I could, that like the academy wasn't talking about non-binary gender, even though people all over the internet were talking about it. And that even though there wasn't a place I could go to observe them and sample them, that there were plenty of social media groups. Mm. So I had that realization early on and found it echoed through a lot of literature about hard to reach marginalized communities, that it's, you know, like, one way that you can study them is through online groups because that's how they find each other and support each other, even if they live far away from each other. So um, that was both how I collected my preliminary data that I used to shape my interviews and also a huge part of how I sampled people to interview. I started with the non-binary people who I knew, but then I asked them to please reach out to their non-binary friends or post my call for interviewees in any social media groups that they were a part of that were for non-binary folk. And so a lot of them posted in closed groups that I couldn't ethically join since I don't identify as non-binary and um, got a pretty wide reach of respondents that way. But it took a while. It took a year and a half 
to get a total of 47 people to let me interview them. And it wasn't nearly as racially diverse as I'd been hoping, but uh, no matter how much I asked people to like, particularly if you have any like people of color friends who are non-binary, I just, you know, I got what I got and I worked with it. Yeah, and I'm always curious, you know, coming from the literary angle in the social sciences, like what happens when, you know, you have a publisher, you have Palgrave um, behind you, who signs off on your interviews, like how you've gone about getting interviews or getting the uh, qualitative analysis? Is it, does the publisher push back and suggest more interviews or do they say, oh, oh that never all- no, no. So, okay. Okay. So that doesn't happen. No. Okay. I mean, if that was going to happen, it would have had to happen much earlier on when I was writing the dissertation and it was suggested at a point, but I needed to just move on with the analysis and not be stuck in my program forever. Yeah. And like, it was just such a slow trickle of people. And I wanted to have a second kid and be done with data collection and was like, nope, this is good enough. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. Well, that's a breath of fresh air because it's exciting to know for all of those who really want to get their dissertation streamlined into a publication that you're not really going to get pushback. I mean, I guess unless an editor is really, really, you know, specializes in what you're doing once it's signed off as a dissertation that research is solid i mean the biggest pushback that i got because i got rejected by several presses before going with palgrave was that i'm an outsider and a really big pushback against outsider research uh which is interesting because there's also obviously plenty of pushback against insider research so like you can't win yeah um, can you go but, there though like what what would be the because i'm so curious and mm-hmm. i know everyone listening is saying oh what would be the pushback you know especially if you are an insider to a community yeah um i mean i feel like the biggest pushback was political uh there was a press that i was in conversation with for more than six months had Zoom sessions with the editor multiple times. She was really invested in the work. And then she finally put it out to peer review. And one of the peer reviewers was like, absolutely not. No, she's not non-binary. She has no business doing this research. Um, And the editor got really spooked by that. It was like, you know, as much as I really want to you know partner with you and see this book through they you know they might have a point and this might be a huge issue while marketing it and like are you the right person to be telling this story so sorry and basically I got that same feedback from another academic press of like why you why are you the one telling this story and the answer is simple it's because nobody else was doing it like yeah, geez, you were doing the first sorry. you were doing so the sorry that nobody else did this before me like that's not my problem it's an important topic let's get the yeah. work out there <laughs> and I think this is of course you know I don't want you to say anything that you're not comfortable saying but um here in the ivory tower boiler room like right after 
we release your redoing gender interview, we're going to have a lot of pop culture and um, analysis podcasts. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them that we're having talk about this issue of identitarian politics and mm -hmm. like being in a group and being outside the group. And I think it's so interesting that you bring this up in terms of um, getting your work out there with different presses because you're right. There's so much research about even the LGBTQ plus community, or I'll even say in literary studies, there's so much research of those who didn't identify as LGBTQ plus, like Eve Sedgwick, for example, mm -hmm. a straight white cisgender woman who we credit for all really ushering in a lot of queer literary studies. So if they're good ideas and good insights, they're good ideas and good insights. Yeah like let it go and I tried super hard in this book to center the words of the people I interviewed and to really talk around them instead of over them I sent them every single thing before submitting it for publication to give them an opportunity to be the first eyes on it let me know if I was ever taking their words out of context if there was anything they disagreed with in my interpretation or analysis like I kept them super involved throughout the process. I made sure to send them all copies of the book as soon as it came out. I say in the acknowledgements that I really wanted to honor some of their requests to use their real names so they could have credit for their participation, but IRB wouldn't let me. And that I wanted to have on the record that if they wanted to like come out as participants in the book and claim credit for it on their CVs, as like co-producers of this knowledge or whatever that I 100% endorse that and that like they have my blessing so you know I've done whatever I can to be as ethical as I can as an outsider doing this research I also want to push back against the accusation that I'm entirely an outsider mm -hmm. like the more I got involved in this research the more I related to what a lot of my participants were saying and at the end of the day, non-binary is a really complicated category that encapsulates both cisgender people who identify as non-binary and transgender people who identify as non-binary. And for a lot of the cisgender non-binary interviewees, it sounded a lot like being a demigirl, which is what I at this point identify as. So what's so a demigirl? Like, demigirl being like not entirely comfortable calling myself a woman due to political issues with it and what it means to even like uphold the binary through labeling practices. Hmm. Um, but also just like a lot of discomfort around words like mother. I really don't like being called a mother um, and wife and just like all these things. And to a certain extent, you can get into a debate about like what it means to re-signify the meaning of those words by being loud and proud in that category, but in a non-normative way. But to a certain extent, it's like, well, but I'm uncomfortable with it. And like, what does that mean? So, I mean, if you're trying to figure out how to self-identify, if you don't feel like you're non-binary enough to claim non-binary, but you also have discomfort with the woman category. Demigirl is a really good option because it basically means like woman light or, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, of like woman-ish, like one foot in the woman box, one foot kind of like trying to find an exit. So, you know, I just, I think that 
LGBTQ gatekeepers are so quick to accuse people of being cisgender mm. and of being straight mm. without having the data. Like I know so many allegedly cis white, like cis hetero white men mm-hmm. who do gender research, who are accused all the time of like, what are you doing here? Who are bi? But nobody asks them and they don't feel comfortable saying so. Or like who well, the stories I have some gender you. discomfort and like kind of yeah. experiment with it behind closed doors. Exactly. But they're not gonna like fight on paper about like what happens when people accuse them of being outsiders or people bitching about like cis hetero people being at pride parades. How the fuck do you know? that they're cis hetero calm the mm-hmm. fuck down yeah it's like, kind of like women or assuming that there are women in a gay bar and they shouldn't they don't fit a queer persona and i've just heard a lot um from the gay and lesbian review there's a really interesting podcast that just came out and that was the whole topic was gay bars in washington dc and how a lot of self-identified women feel that their sexuality is being assumed, like you're saying, yeah. they're being assumed. And I mean, this is obviously a ra- an issue in bi-erasure literature and mm-hmm. activism. Um, and also like what happens with a lot of people when they're misgendered because of like being non-binary, but presenting as a feminine, you know, presenting person who was also assigned female at birth and everyone assuming that you're a woman and treating you as such and being like, what the fuck is she doing here in you know, a trans space or whatever. So I just, I really like so much of my research is about group membership and group, I like group politics and identity. And I just don't think that LGBTQ gatekeepers are cognizant or empathetic enough about how many baby queers they scare away from community by acting this way. And like how many people wind up being alienated and really like having a lot of anxiety about reaching out to be a part of the community because of really early, really bad interactions with people making them feel like they aren't queer enough they aren't trans enough they don't belong there yeah is that what surprised you the most out of you know completing redoing gender or was there something else to that okay hold on to that question because we'll be right back but first a word from our sponsor Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I mean, it's definitely sort of like my primary soapbox at this point is, okay, like, 
is gender a spectrum? What does that mean? A spectrum necessitates polar opposites and we have to buy into the notion that man and woman are the poles of gender and that they're opposites and that everybody else falls somewhere in between. And that's like a problematic construction that reinforces the binary at the end of the day. Um, so that's like one of the key takeaways for me as a person and how I think about things coming out of this work. But the other one is that binary non-binary is a false binary for a lot of people. Mm. And like, it's a useful um, term in a lot of ways to help people label themselves and find community and disidentify from um, normative gender scripts. But it also leaves a lot of people who are somewhere in the middle really confused about what's going on with them and how to identify. And with a lot of the like, am I blank enough anxieties? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to simultaneously uphold other identity categories, make sure people are aware of them as legitimate, such as demi girl and demi guy. Yeah, well, I think you've just answered my question, which is what is redoing gender? Like, where did that title, how does that speak to the content of your book? And Sure. It's, no, I mean, I can answer that more. Yeah, fully. please, please. Um, I would like to put in neon blinking type mm -hmm. that this is not about Judith Butler. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, not like I'm making a statement about Judith Butler, but I'm glad you're clarifying. When Judith Butler published Undoing Gender, there was a whole lot of pushback from sociologists being like, I'm sorry, you don't cite Weston Zimmerman's doing gender at all in this entire book that is clearly ripping off their concept in the title. Are you fucking kidding me? And so like, this is very self-consciously um, a kind of response to her using undoing gender in a title to be like, all right, let's bring it back to sociology now. Yeah redoing gender. And there is a debate. So doing gender is the concept that gender isn't something that you're born with, but rather it's something that you sort of like learn and do interactively as a toddler, as a preschooler, you are taught how to behave like a girl, like a boy, you internalize it, what it means to be a good girl, to be a good boy, you gender police it and other people and if they're doing girl wrong, you let them know or you tease them. And same with if you're doing boy wrong. Mm. And then when you're in relationships, it continues. Um, and in interactions with institutions and with parents and with siblings. And so um, this is a concept called doing gender that emerged in the early 1970s in sociology. And then there was like a debate about, okay, but doing gender is very much about maintaining the status quo. What do we make of our historical observations of gender norms changing and shifting and kind of relaxing and the possibility of like, what is acceptable gendered behavior changing as well? And so there was a whole debate a bunch, uh, um, among a bunch of top scholars about what do we call this? And some people did suggest undoing gender. And then Weston Zimmerman, the people who came up with doing gender were like, no, 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 no. 
Because undoing gender suggests that there are no longer any accountability structures keeping you in check and telling you when you're doing gender wrong. And even when we see gender relaxing, we also still see accountability structures in place. So it's not that these go away, but they do sort of like shift where they are. And so it would be more accurate to call this redoing gender. So I'm a big proponent of redoing gender as a theory and as a concept um, in other research of mine, such as with Jewish women who wear yarmulkes, I theorize the redoing of gender. But there hadn't been a book called Redoing Gender yet, and at the heart of it, that's what my project was about, was about like analyzing this social change where, um, you know, like the confines of what is recognizable, legible gender are shifting in our society, which we are seeing at an institutional level with like the acknowledgement of alternative pronouns and more options on IDs and everything. Like it's inarguable that we are at a moment of some sort of like institutional acknowledgement mm -hmm. and legitimation of more than just man and woman as gender categories. So this is the redoing of gender. Mm -hmm. And I think it's nowhere more obvious than through the non-binary gender case study. Wow. And also that non-binary people have really been at the center of a lot of this, of forcing society to reconsider what gender is and acknowledge them as legitimate. Well, this is why I love sitting down with you in our space here, because your work is so important, Halana. And I just want to thank you for being so adamant to stake a claim and to know that yeah there's going to be some who don't agree but that's how research happens like that's what happens when you're starting to really rethink concepts and to you know bring in the studies of non-binary people in your case and know that there's going to be theoretical pushback but in my opinion that's what really helps us grow is when we have these really complex discussions. But also like, I don't have any skin in the game. I'm not staying in academia. I found myself a six figure entry level job as a UX researcher. Which is I'm incredible. Out. That's like, incredible. Cheers to that. Peace out toxic bitches. I'm done with y'all. You have made my life a nightmare for a decade. Have fun with my work. You're welcome. I hope it's helpful, but like, I actually don't really care about what pushback I get. I put this out there for no money. I basically made 50 cents an hour at the end of the day when I calculate the shitty contract I had to sign to get this out there. And like, it's not for self-aggrandizement. It's not for profit. It's just because it, I thought it was important. And my interviewees put a lot of labor into it. So I wanted it out there and I thought maybe it could help. And like, right. hopefully it will help. And yeah. like, okay, cool. Have fun debating it, I guess. But I'm going to be over here watching Real Housewives and enjoying my money. Well, I'm with you with the Housewives. But um, I think what's wonderful is you honor your interviewees and their words. And that's so important at the end of the day. And it does seem just like watching you from social media, our conversations, knowing you from this whole journey, um, that leaving academia 
in a way, because I can see broke down that anxiety or mm -hmm. that writer's block. Um, and I just think it's incredible because, you know, your work, it's so important. And I want you to know so many people are responding positively to it. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, good to know. especially on social media, I see it on your Twitter. I oh, see, yeah. you know. My Twitter we, people are just like my buddies. They witness all the good, the bad, and the ugly of life with me. And like, we support each other. I feel like most of it is mental health focused because a lot of them are dealing with toxicity in academia and trying to figure it out. And like, you know, a lot of my Twitter love, I think, is more about like me as a person and less about my work. And I think that's more valuable. I like that. Yeah, your humanity. Yeah. And, well, and I think if we don't speak openly and have these conversations, um, the toxicity will continue, right? Oh. Like there is hope that we can end these toxic structures. I had to say to my boss at my UX job the other day when she was giving me just like the gentlest feedback in the entire world about a report that I did. And I was like, you know, you don't actually have to be this timid about giving me feedback. You have no idea. I have been through countless rejections of my work in journals and books. And the feedback has been scathing because of people being emboldened by anonymity and not knowing for sure who the author is on the other side. Mm -hmm. It has been ruthless. And I have learned how to deal and how to like highlight the actionable items, take a deep breath, delete the rest of the text, turn that into a to-do list and make it better. And at the end of the day, feel grateful for the pieces of the feedback that were actually helpful instead of like, you're the wrong person to do this work, which is like, what do I do with that? Uh <laughs> yeah, that's not constructive. I keep saying to everyone around me, because I think we're, you know, especially when you see me on Instagram, it's highlighting so much love and enjoyment I'm getting out of my days. But it's true. Is someone giving you really productive feedback or do they just want to take a piece of your soul? I'm not interested in taking a piece and trying to knock me down. So is that advice that you have, Falana? Like, what, what do you do to everyone listening? I mean, everyone listening has had an obstacle that they're facing. What do you do when you're encountering it's so tough, but- That's so funny because yeah. before I jumped on this call, I was editing the chapter of my Me Too book called yeah. Perseverance. Wow, the, the, the chapter, chapter. is oh, wow. called Perseverance. So I, I don't know if you're ready to jump into that book yet. Yes, no, please okay. go into it. Yeah. So my second book, which I'm struggling super hard to find a literary agent for, and uh, just had like the head spinning rage of a literary agent telling me there isn't a market for me two stories. Uh, what? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, everyone uh, listening, because there's a lot of literary publicists who listen to these episodes, please. Like, if you have a connection. I'm so appalled. I'm assuming, I'm so appalled. which publisher are you aiming? I'm assuming you're aiming for a more general. Uh, you know, actually, as I revise this book, I think the biggest market is going to be psychologists. Interesting. Uh, so it's like a meditation on trauma. And it's, uh, I mean, my original title for it has been Me Too PhD, a trauma memoir. 
but actually now I'm thinking the title should be the Ivory Tower Dungeon, the Me Too PhD trauma memoir. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I like, well, Uh, no, we like that. Yeah. (laughs) I make a lot of references to being in a dungeon and I make a lot of references to like the doors of the ivory tower opening and like not knowing the darkness I was walking into and um, being like an abandoned trophy gathering dust and all this stuff. Uh, So yeah, I'm thinking the ivory tower dungeon at this point, but I decided to break the chapters into a key word related to like me too trauma and then a dictionary definition of it followed by my thick description of that psychological process through my firsthand accounts. And so I have chapters like gaslighting, love bombing, grooming, um, coercion, um, uh, feminist bystanders, Mm. um, institutional abuse. That's my one about title nine. Re-traumatizing me. And then uh yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, okay, I also have to have a chapter in there that's like, okay, my whole life wasn't wrapped up in this man. I had other shit going on Mm. and like was really strong and worked through all of it. So that one's called perseverance. Uh, but that's also where I talk about how it all turned into fuel to publish because I figured if I published enough, I could get out of there faster. And like, I also wanted to prove to spite all the haters who obviously wanted to see me drop out and be like, fuck you. I just got published in a more prestigious journal than any of the faculty are getting published in. No, no congratulations. What a shocker. All right. See you later. Uh (laughs) I mean, well, I know, Halana, you are joining me eventually. Um as a co-host, which is going to be exciting for uh, The Trouble with White Women. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when is that? I haven't bought the book yet. I should. I'm sorry. Well, we'll talk off air, but no, right. no. You have a few, <laughs> you have like a few months. Okay. But, um, so that'll be exciting with um, Kyla Schuller is the author mm-hmm. because, you know, maybe ask some advice because that kind of imprint would be a really, I could say, the meditation on trauma that you're really highlighting. I I think think that anybody who deals with people who are in trauma would benefit from the type of extremely vulnerable, very real self-reflection that I provide in this book, including like a window into my own like thought processes, um, such as my chapter Stockholm Syndrome where I talk about the like fucked up head game that led to his mm-hmm. enemies being my enemies and my commitment to protect him at all costs. Yeah, even and though how you work through. He was like, my abuser. You know, being, um, you know, a fellow um, sexual assault slash, you know, abuse survivor, I know this will be so helpful to just be in community and understand how to work your way through eventually finding your light and peace and feeling whole, which, you know, is a constant journey, but yeah, you know, I cannot wait to read it. I also hope you do an audiobook book mm, for, for redoing gender. Yeah, Paul Grave hasn't invited me to yet. Well, I think you should do an audiobook for our just like there's doing no gender signing. There's yeah. no nothing. Like it's just okay. I guess my book is out now. Well, hopefully, 
you know, someone out here wants to hear Helena read Redoing Gender. Also, you know, literary agents, let's find Helena's Me Too memoir, a place and a home. And, you know, definitely you'll need to do an audiobook for your Me Too if you're comfortable with that, of course. Ooh, I don't know if I can do that. Oh that boy. No, that would probably be re-traumatizing for me to have to read it out loud. Uh, but redoing gender, I could read out loud. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So as we're ending, first, this was just wonderful, which I knew anytime I sit with you, Helena, you know, we're gonna hit so many topics. Um so with redoing gender. What would the general public, like just someone who really wants to learn more about the state of gender identity, but specifically, you know, even just what non-binary gender means, you know, what do you really want them to take away from purchasing your book? Empathy. Hmm. I think the primary purpose of this book is to increase empathy among people who still think that they, them pronouns are up for debate on grammatical grounds mm. and um, other people who just like get hung up on things that they think it's okay to debate. Uh, I, I really want anybody who is open-minded enough to pick up this book, but still confused and maybe with some hangups to get to the end of the book with the feeling that they just got to know a bunch of non-binary people and like see a window into their lives and into some of their struggles and into how hard they work every day to be respected mm -hmm. and realize in the words of one of my interviewees, like, I don't care if they understand it. You don't have to understand it to respect me. And that is the message at the end of the day that I hope they accept at the end of reading the book is, okay, I, I still may not relate like on a personal level to what they went through, but like, I don't have to be shitty about it. I can accept that people have other experiences of life and gender than I do and be kind. Wow, well, that's a place to end. And everyone who is listening, viewing, please, please get your hands on Dr. Helena Darwin's Redoing Gender, How Non-Binary Gender Contributes Towards Social, Soci no, Social Change. I was about to say societal. It's $25. You can get it on Amazon or on Barnes and Noble or through Springer and it's soft cover. And I think a pretty easy read. Yes. It's not too long. I know people don't have attention spans anymore. So it's like 150 pages. Yeah. And you learned so much from your interviewees and their words, which you've highlighted with that last quote. So on that note, thank you, Helena. And I can't wait to have you back on again. Yeah. See you next time. We'll talk yes. off air so that I can do my homework. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or join as an Ivory Tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. 
I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime in Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren Usta is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So Mary, where can they follow us on social media? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook and you can like our page there. Wonderful. And we, Mary and I and the whole team, hope you all are healthy and happy. And we can't wait to join you and you know, have you all join us in the ivory tower boiler room next week. Bye everyone. Bye.